I believe in change because I believe in you, the American people. And that's why I stand here as confident as I have ever been that the state of our union is strong. Hello and welcome to the Radio DePaul podcast. I'm Derek Peters. Our theme this week is You Think You Know a Guy. Sometimes the people who we think we know so well can still change and surprise us in new and and interesting ways. We're going to start this week with a conversation I had with an old friend. RJ, I've known you, I think, about as long as you can know somebody. <laughs> Pretty much, yep. Yeah. Um, but there's something that I didn't know about you until relatively recently, which was that you're actually transgender. So when did you originally start uh, transitioning? Well, you know, I started transitioning like in the most general sense of that um, within the past couple months, I started the physical and all of that within the past four or five months. The whole like mental transition has been just a really gradual process for a really long time, basically like coming to terms with who I was and all of that, and then approaching like how to tell people. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the transition itself, I don't think there's like one specific time when you start, but it's kind of like you're in flux for... A long time. Was there kind of a moment growing up where you sort of realized that you were transgender? Do you remember that that moment? Oh yeah, all the time. I mean, like playing with you and like my brother and everything. Like, and someone would be like, "Oh, you can't do that." Like that the boys are doing that. I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? I am one. But I just remember that. Um, just like I hated being like treated differently because I always saw myself as like one of the guys. Right. Was it, was there a point where you sort of realized that being transgender was a thing? Like uh, what was the point where you sort of put a name to what you were feeling? Right. Well, I mean, growing up, we didn't really hear anything about it. It it was very not mainstream. Um, no one really talked about it. And if they did, it wasn't like positive. Um, and even so it was usually like, I heard way more about trans women than I did ever like trans men. So honestly, when I went away to college is when I started hearing about all of this and like starting to put together the pieces. And the more I learned about it, the more I'm like, oh, my God, this is like who I am. Yeah, because, well, we're not from a a really small town. I mean, we're from a kind of a mid-sized suburb. But I, I, yeah, I don't really remember hearing that much about trans people growing up. Right. And when when I did, I, it was definitely trans women, not trans men. Right. Uh, when did you start going by RJ? Well, you know, I started going by RJ among, like, closer friends um, probably two, maybe three years ago. And it started as a joke because um, my dad, when I cut all my hair off in high school, used to joke around and call me Reggie instead of Regina. <laughs> so yeah. someone along the line... There were like little kids involved and uh, someone was saying Reggie and the little kids are like, RJ, RJ. So it just stuck. <laughs> wow. 
So, you know, that's where that came from. What was the process like when you were getting ready to start telling people? Um, I assume it was probably a gradual process, right? Right. Um, so who, who did you start with and what was the anxiety like going into that? I mean, it was definitely a lot of anxiety. I started with people that I knew were very like open-minded and supportive of that. So I started with like LGBTQ friendly friends of mine. And there were a lot of like late night conversations, like a lot of tears shed and like freaking out <laughs> to like come to terms with it. And then very slowly I expanded like who I told until a couple months ago when I decided, you know what, this is who I am and I didn't want to have to keep living as something that I wasn't at that point. Um, I told my little birth sister actually called me out on it Yeah. <laughs> before anyone, I started even talking to anyone and I denied it, of course. <laughs> um, I was like, no, you don't know that. What are you talking about? But it turns out she was right. So, and then I went to my oldest sister who's always kind of had my back on that and I knew her stance on all of those issues. So it was kind of a safe choice. So I went to her first and kind of got advice on how to handle telling the rest of the family because, as you know, my parents aren't exactly um, the most liberal and, like, <laughs> we're thinking in terms of all of that. They're traditional. But were yeah. they supportive? You know, they were. I mean, in their own way. They took it much better than I thought they would. It was one of those, I'm really lucky, and a lot of trans people are not this lucky, um, but they took it as you know what, like, we love you regardless, and they don't necessarily, like, understand it quite yet. Um, they're both working really hard, too. Right. Um, well, I think maybe, we all are. Um, yeah. You know, kind of, as a as a country, I think we're kind of starting to, to work harder at, at understanding what yeah. it means to be trans and, and understanding, um, you know, what, what that means to us. Absolutely, and I'm really glad that that conversation has gotten like bigger um, as a country and on the like smaller level because it used to be something that you just kind of hush hush like didn't talk about but the fact that it's becoming like a topic of conversation in the household is good it's awesome what's the well maybe i don't want to limit it to one thing but what are what are some of the biggest things that you think the general public still doesn't quite understand um about trans uh people right um well, one of them is always going to be the fact that there's a general conception that being trans is a choice, and it's really not. It's just like anything, and you don't get to pick being trans, and if you did, why would you choose to be trans? Because it's so much harder. <laughs> right. Uh, have you encountered any problems with your friends that you were friends with sort of before your transition? Did you encounter any kind of problems with them uh, after you came out as trans? Did I mean, that change any of your relationships, basically? I was expecting my whole world to just get like turned upside down and be awful and like all my friends not to talk to me because I like had never <laughs> addressed anything like this with them before I'm like oh my gosh like they're all really religious there's this they're not going to talk to me but I had overwhelming support when I came out um, from the church from everyone basically and no one was negative the people that didn't agree were not confrontational they were it was, I got really, really lucky on that front, too. I guess I picked good friends. Right. <laughs> you know, I didn't really have any issues with any of my friends except for a couple people <laughs> flipping up on the name all the time. Or oh, sure. Just like, well, I know you as that, but... That's more of a habit, I think, than anything. You know, you know and I, I even do it. And 
people have this idea that like trans people are all like stuck up about like pronouns and stuff but I mean it's the whole like make an effort and like be respectful if you're calling me the wrong pronoun to be disrespectful yeah I'm gonna get mad but I understand that it's been 21 years of the opposite and even I slip up yeah someone asked me like oh what's your name and like I freeze up my gut reaction sometimes is just to blurt out the wrong name so (laughs) I can't really hold everyone else like oh you're wrong all the time when I still am flipping up I know it's a it's definitely a process On Sunday, the news broke that recording legend David Bowie had passed away. Bowie was somebody who always kept us guessing with his various personas, his different musical styles. Here with a remembrance is Hannah Hoffman. It still feels very odd to discuss David Bowie in the past tense. As an artist, Bowie was always in the present, consistently pushing the boundaries of creative expression in his music, his acting, and his rock and roll performance. He constantly reinvented himself as a way to explore new musical territories, giving us Ziggy Stardust, The Thin White Duke, and now in Black Star, a modern day Lazarus. Throughout his long and always interesting career, Bowie gave many of us kooks the freedom to explore our own identities beyond those socially presented to us, because he did so every day. It seems very un-David Bowie, then, to dwell on the successes of the past and reminisce about one particular musical era. Beyond being a source of inspiration for many younger artists, Bowie was also a fearless champion of new talent from Iggy Pop and Noi to Lord and Arcade Fire. On May 20th, 1979, David Bowie was a guest DJ on BBC Radio 1. Listening to the show gave me more insight into Bowie as a person than I ever heard just by listening to his recorded music or watching his movies or live performances. It broke the fourth wall between pop superstar and passionate, geeked-out fan. Many selections on the playlist seem to be quintessentially David Bowie, including selections from Mark Bolin, The Velvet Underground, Talking Heads, Jeff Beck, Iggy Pop, and more. But there's also the unexpected. He discusses Danny Kaye's use of numbers in the song Inchworm, plays a selection from Nursery Suite, promotes Steve Forbert, a then-unknown New York City songwriter, and plays It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City by Bruce Springsteen. When you listen to this show, you get the sense of the highly curated nature of Bowie's selections. But you also get the sense that he is having so much fun sitting behind the DJ booth playing these records. For the past three years, I've been a DJ here on Radio DePaul. As my final year winds down, I was going back and listening to some of my old shows. What I noticed was how I often apologized for playing a selection of music I was worried someone might think was strange, whether it was a piece of German kraut rock, some prog rock from Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, or a piece of Americana music. Today, it's so easy to get caught up in what's current, what's trendy, and what people might think of the music you love. For the longest time, I never played Americana music on my show. Even though it was the music I loved, I was worried what people might think of the selections. 
But listening to Bowie's show, he never apologizes for some of his more offbeat musical selections. It doesn't seem weird to go from Iggy Pop's TVI to Danny Kaye's Inchworm and Philip Glass's Einstein on the Beach. These are all songs and artists that Bowie loves, so why wouldn't he play them on his show? Throughout his life and his music, his art, his performance, Bowie never apologized for what some might have considered an offbeat step. He was always true to himself, to his art, and us fans followed him because we wanted to feel that same way. Bowie never stopped listening to what was happening around him. That is something we should all aspire to do. We started our show today with President Obama assuring us that the state of our union remains strong. The other producers and I sat down to have a conversation about just the way that President Obama has kept us guessing throughout the years. I'm here with Sajna Karanth, Matthew Barbusio. Hello. Hello. And we took a look at Obama's 2008 State of the Union address right after Obama uh, assumed office. He's a... Uh, still dark-haired man at the time. Um, then we took a look at the 2011 State of the Union address, which was, of course, the one where he was gearing up for his re-election campaign. Uh, and then, of course, the most recent State of the Union address, his final State of the Union address on um, Tuesday, this past Tuesday. The spirit that has sustained this nation for more than two centuries lives on in you. It's people. Matt, take us back in time to 2008. Uh, what, what, what jumped out to you about this speech? What jumped out to me was he's really carrying through the theme of hope that was permeating his entire campaign. You know, that was kind of the face of Obama and then hope yeah. underneath it. And, you know, this was his first one, so he had no prior experience and no prior work to kind of speak on and speak on the progress of where he was at. He's also a very young senator at the time, yeah. too, so he's not a whole bo- a lot, a large body of, of political yeah. work. He still has general. a sense of humor It was here. really surprising yeah. because of the lack of experience that he had. Yeah, and it's almost naive in a way because he keeps talking about bipartisan relations and how he's going to meet with them every month. This week, I'll be meet, uh, addressing a meeting of the House Republicans. I'd like to begin monthly meetings with both Democratic and Republican leadership. I know you can't wait. I really am expect. I really want to know if that still goes on every month because I'm pretty sure it doesn't. <laughs> and it's a funny theme to carry through all three of the State of the Unions that we watched. If we, once we go on to the ones that we're going to talk about next, you can see him kind of getting broken down and broken down. With their votes, they've determined that governing will now be a shared responsibility between parties. New laws will only pass with support from Democrats and Republicans. We will move forward together, or not at all, for the challenges we face are bigger than party and bigger than politics. Bipartisanship is definitely the through line, I think, through all three of these speeches. Um, and it's really interesting to see the way that his tone and demeanor when he, he discusses bipartisanship has changed throughout the years. Uh, right. You almost see it in his first one as like he's trying to be like the hero 
and he's trying to be like, hey, I can unite these guys, and right. well, I think it's possible. He was the candidate of charisma and, and hope, like right. Matt said. He, that was kind of his, his appeal was that, hey, I am so charismatic as a leader that I can exactly. you know, bring everybody together. The weight of this crisis will not determine the destiny of this nation. The answers to our problems don't lie beyond our reach. They exist in our laboratories, in our universities, in our fields, in our factories, in the imaginations of our entrepreneurs, and the pride of the hardest working people on earth. Moving to the to the 2011 address as well, um, gearing up for re-election, he his big uh, pitch continued to be trying to end bipartisanship. In the 2011 speech, he actually had the Congress uh, sit with the people of the alternate party. So if you're a Republican, you had to sit next to a Democrat um, to try to It's pretty it, funny watching the video. Yeah, a <laughs> visual impression of, of everybody. Uh, the senators seemed like they were having a lot of fun with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it is funny to see, like, every other person giving a standing ovation uh, during, alternating. during this speech. The health insurance law we passed last year will slow these rising costs, which is part of the, the reason that Nonpartisan economists have said that repealing the health care law would add a quarter of a trillion dollars to our deficit. Still, I'm willing to look at other ideas to bring down costs, including one that Republicans suggested last year, medical malpractice reform to rein in frivolous lawsuits. And he kind of admitted in his State of the Union as well that that was something that, in his opinion, got worse throughout his presidency. It's one of the few regrets of my presidency that the rancor and suspicion between the parties has gotten worse instead of better. He said he wishes he could have mended that up, but at the same time, that's probably never going to happen. He also said that with when he was talking about the Affordable Care Act, he was like, I don't think we're ever going to agree on this. So Mm -hmm. that's that. So it almost sounded like he just gave up. Well, and you also see that evidenced in like his executive orders mm-hmm. recently. He's really uh, dug into the executive order game late in his presidency uh, to try to, you know, get around that gridlocked Congress. Right. Uh, another thing that pops up in all of these speeches is the economy. I, I think I know uh, at least the 2008 speech. Uh, and the 2011 speech were both very heavy on economics. That's the recession uh, was very fresh on the minds of America at both 2008 and 2011. Um, well, but it's kind of interesting to see the different uh, ways he approaches uh, the economic issues. Like in 2008, uh, he seemed to be more. I guess uh, how would prioritizing? You yeah, yeah. Well, the entire speech was on the economy, right? Um, but there's definitely an upward trend. How his presidency changed and how this country has changed from eight years ago to now, and it's definitely the economy has gotten a lot better. And you can see him dedicating less and less time to the economy because he's kind of been holding that down. Let me start with the economy and a basic fact: the United States of America, right now has the strongest, most durable economy in the world. Mm, Right. But in 2008, it was the entire speech. One in 10 Americans still cannot find work. Many businesses have shuttered. 
home values have declined. Small towns and rural communities have been hit especially hard. And for those who'd already known poverty, life's become that much harder. Well, I know in 2016, in the State of the Union in 2016, he didn't dedicate much time to talking about the economy. Um, and the time that he did dedicate was more talking about how far we've come in our economy. It was... Um, Entitlements a little bit, too. Yeah, he was kind of like, um, he was really proud of how far he brought our economy. He was like, this is, I mean, this is my prize. This is what I did. And he, you know, he, sta he stated that um, right now, or since the past seven years, he's opened up 14.1 million jobs. Um, unemployment right now is like a little below 5%, I think, which is crazy considering what it was at when the crash happened 2000 2009 2010 it was right it was up closer to 10 percent yeah yeah it was interesting to see how little time he dedicated to it and even the time that he he did was more like look what i did and mm -hmm. um at one point he even said that we have these at this point the strongest economy in the entire world which is crazy to think because we've spent so many years now seeing that our economy sucks Mm -hmm. um, with the sort of specter of, of China kind of hanging over us. Yeah, that's probably a really good note for him to leave off of is kind of like, you know, I told you I would fix this and mm -hmm. this is what I did. And you see him planting kind of the the roots for that in, in 2011 with all of the talk that he, he gave on um, innovation, investment, mm -hmm. um, in education as well uh, of, of the young people and then kind of pushing trying to push the american economy towards uh new technologies um right. he mentions kind of a, a strange uh bit of a serendipity between the 2011 speech and the 2016 speech was uh he mentioned sputnik yeah. in both and <laughs> used sort of a, a sputnik moment as a call to action for he american seems to innovation. really like sputnik yeah this is our generation's sputnik moment Two years ago, I said that we needed to reach a level of research and development we haven't seen since the height of the space race. And in a few weeks, I will be sending a budget to Congress that helps us meet that goal. In terms of how he's changing presidency just as a concept and how you're expected to act in the media. Yeah, I mean, now that, you're seeing Hillary Clinton sending Snapchats to people. Well, yeah. So. so are we going to expect all of our presidents to show up on Mark Maron's podcast or go on Between Two Ferns? I don't, because I think it's two different conversations when you talk about the way that he acts as a media personality and the types of media that he's doing. Um, well, that's what I, I'm talking about, the types, types of, media of media that, that he's, he's participating doing. in. Right. Like, yeah. Is that now standard? Because he's been doing it for four years. I mean, I think so. I, I, I don't or is it know. only standard for Democrats? I don't know that it's... It it's... also depends on what, what his audience is. I feel like for the Republican candidates now, they don't really care as much to appeal to the younger audience as much as Obama did. You know, that's uh, well, that's true. And I think that that is what's going to determine how much of these new media outlets uh, any kind of future president engages with is who do they want to talk to? Where is the audience they're trying to reach? Yeah. Right. Uh, if they're trying to reach young people, then, you know, jumping on Mark Maron's podcast or YouTube stream or something might be the best way right. to get to them. Or showing up at basketball games and being known as a huge basketball fan. Basketball is the most useful, youthful sport in the country. Yeah. Doing a, uh, a bracket every year. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. March Madness. 
But I think it's foolish for any candidate to not want to appeal to a younger audience. Yeah, yeah. They're not, they're not just like, oh, we don't need them. Of course they want them. Of mm-hmm. course they're going to try. Mm-hmm. But now, as Obama changed the way you try. And it's interesting because he didn't really use those mediums in 2008. And yet, I feel like he still appealed to the younger audience just because he was a younger senator. I think that was his, like, yeah. in 2008. And he, he has definitely aged yes. exponentially since then. All he, those white hairs. Yeah. It's it's crazy. I, you can look up time lapse, like, pictures of that people have generated of, like, all the potential presidential candidates and what they would look like when they come out of office. It, it's pretty pretty haunting when you look at presidents the day they walk into office, the day they walk out, see how much of a toll the office has taken on them right. over the years. This is Obama's final State of the Union address. And obviously that kind of, we're able to start talking a little bit about Obama's presidency um, now that we're kind of towards the end of it and looking back on most of it, we're able to start talking about um, its successes, its failures, its expectations versus its realities um, with a little bit more authority. Uh, so what, what did it feel like you know, for you guys, when Obama took office, uh, was he the president that you thought he'd be? Yeah, I mean, I feel like in 2008, I like I viewed him as this savior, I guess, just because I was so, so sick of Bush at that point. And I like, you know, anything he did at that point to me was like good. You know, any thought that he had, any plan that he had, especially when he stayed in the State of the Union, everything he said, I was like, yes, yes, of course. Um but it was interesting to see what he was able to accomplish and he, what he was not able to accomplish. And I think as the years went by, and especially with the social media tools that he was using to reach out to us, I viewed him more as a real person and not less as a savior. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of, I understood what he was trying to accomplish, but you can't accomplish everything. He was your savior, and I'm like, I'm super jealous of you, Sancho, that you were like politically conscious in middle school, because that was like 2008, right? Yeah. I was in middle school. I didn't care at all. I mean, that was another school, thing right? to think about. Freshman year of high school. Yeah, that was middle, another thing to think thing, about though. because <laughs> I didn't pay attention to his policies as much, right? So, like, mm-hmm. to me, as a ninth grader, like, we were just—I know I was just going into ninth grade when this happened. I'm not looking into his policies. I'm looking at this young senator who, in my eyes, is, yeah. you know. Um, I know my family is more liberal, so I'm like, oh, my family's liberal, this guy's liberal, we're all good here. Um, well, yeah, because I was going to ask if you thought that the seeing him more as a real person is just kind of a function of you maturing as a be. person, having more awareness politically. Um, I think know. that plays a big factor in it. I think now, I mean, when you start looking into his policies and you start looking you know, into what he was able to accomplish here, what he was able to accomplish or not accomplish abroad. And I think as I as I start to grow and develop my own political ideas, it helps to, you know, kind of see how much I do agree with him. That's going to do it for us this week. As always, you can listen to Radio DePaul at radio.depaul.edu or Radio DePaul Sports at RadioDePaulSports.com, or you can listen to both on our smartphone app, the Radio DePaul app, available for both Android and iOS devices. Please subscribe and rate our show in iTunes. It helps us find new listeners. Or you can follow us on SoundCloud. 
We'll be back next week with more of the best bits from Radio DePaul, Chicago's College Connection. <laughs>